0: Hey everyone, welcome to the Godcast. I am Xavier. And I am Balin. Welcome to the Godcast, a podcast in which we discuss comparative religion, the development of religions, debates on religions, and skepticism. Stay tuned for planned future episodes, such as Episode 2, Mystery Cults, such as the Cult of Mithras, the Isis and Osiris Mysteries, the Baal Mysteries, and numerous other mystery cults. Episode 3, Apocryphal Gospels. Stay tuned for this episode because we are planning on discussing the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Peter, the Gospel of Judas and many other, actually rather all Gospels that were not included in the Bible. We're planning on having episode four cover eschatology. This means comparing the end-time theologies of different religions. So how the world will end according to different religions. And episode five being a debate, theism versus atheism. So, Balin, today we'll be discussing four different hypotheses as to if Jesus existed. The the apocalyptic hypothesis. The Apocalyptic Prophet Hypothesis, the Zealot Hypothesis, the Essene Hypothesis, and the Mythicist Hypothesis.
1: Well, then let's just uh, jump right in. Uh, Why don't we start with the Apocalyptic Prophet Hypothesis? That, of course, being the uh, hypothesis that Jesus was a Doomsday Prophet. So you have Apocalypticism, which is the school of thought that if Jesus is an Apocalypticist,
0: he would be immersed in that. This Apocalypticism... School of thought begins around 150 BCE with strong Zoroastrian influence, right? You have the concept of Satan. Satan is reintroduced due to Zoroastrian influence from being this character in God's heavenly court who asks, hey, can I persecute Job for whatever reason, to being the adversary, the chief adversary against God, which is, you know, paralleling Ahura Mazda and Angra Manu. In Zoroastrianism, uh, there's also four points to apocalypticism, dualism, pessimism, vindication, and imminence.
1: Well, if I recall correctly, um, the reason behind this Zoroastrian influence was because of Cyrus the Great um, freeing the the uh, Jewish population from their Babylonian captors.
0: Yeah, so then you have this cross-cultural exchange. And you get the tenets of dualism. This is like dualism and Zoroastrianism go hand in hand. You have pessimism, vindication, and imminence, which are the three other points of apocalypticism. Also, for an apocalyptist, sin is like a demonic force that's trying to, you know, get people to do their its will. Death is also seen as a demonic force that is literally trying to enslave people. Apocalypticists also said hey, there is no middle ground. Either we're fighting for God or fighting for Satan, good or evil. And there's also the belief that the in terms of pessimism the only way for the sin and suffering and death to pass away to come to pass is through god it has to be divine intervention. we can't do it ourselves vindication uh no one can escape god's final judgment once god prevails anyone who's profit enough of sin and death and evilness they're going to eternal punishment which is a new tenant of judaism and in fact an earlier judaism before so this is pre-exilic judaism you had Sheol, which was the house of dust where souls would not last for a, for a very long time. So they go to this afterlife, but they die in the afterlife is what essentially is supposed to happen. Sheol, it's the house of dust. You have imminence. This is coming right now. Jesus shows up in Mark. His first words in the gospel, of the fir- this first words in the first gospel written is, quote, the time has been fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand, so repent and believe in the gospel. He's telling you, how it is, straight from the get-go.
1: Well, I find that very interesting, um, especially the part about death being a uh, demonic force in certain beliefs. That, of course, is uh, actually somewhat different from certain other Christian beliefs, which generally dictate it as <clears throat> a more divine force, uh, such as with the arch possibly archangel Azrael, uh being the angel of death yeah there's some fascinating stuff
0: about the angel of death out there um, i i don't know a, a whole lot about the angel of death but in terms of angelology stay tuned because the metatron role if you know about angelology um is coming in hot for the christ mythicist theory but back to the apocalyptic prophet hypothesis you have Jesus telling the arrival of the the son of man who would arrive and judge everyone who accepted Jesus's teachings, um, which is absolutely fascinating because then you have, you know, the battle between good and evil will culminate in a cosmic battle in which Jesus will, or which God will send down a figure from heaven to earth, often called the son of man, who is supposed to be a human-like angel being, State stick that to your mind, a human-like angel being, because the term angel... The concept of Jesus as an angel is massive for Christ mythicism, um, for Dr. Richard Carrier's uh, view on it, or the Son of Man or or the Messiah will come down, whose divinity will be unclear. Either the Son of Man, a human-like angel being, will come down, or the Messiah will come down, whose divinity is unclear. There's two schools, either, well, because perhaps that's perhaps that perhaps that's an oversimplification, but in general, it's either the Messiah is divine to an extent or a mortal man.
1: Now, I believe it should be remembered that there have been there has been another Messiah in uh, history. That, of course, being Cyrus the Great uh, for his aforementioned uh, freeing of the Jews from their Babylonian captors.
0: The only Gentile referred to as the Messiah in Scripture is cyrus the great a zoroastrian you also have the zoroastrians make an appearance in the new testament in the gospel of luke in which the three magis show up and give jesus uh gifts of gold frankincense and myrrh keep in mind these are not actually you know three kings there are three magi uh, which, which magi being a member of the zoroastrian clergy you can think of them like zoroastrian priests so i thought that was cool to mention
1: now, there is uh, also this, um, another part of this would be uh, the, of the end times would be Jesus being the king of Israel and the 12 apostles ruling over the 12 thrones with him over each tribe they would rule, each of the 12 tribes to be exact. Now, of course, Jesus referred to himself as king of the Jews, uh, sometimes in Moses. Never in public, really only in private, or as far as the uh, officials of Palestine knew, both Roman and uh, of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Additionally, Jesus thought that he would become the king of Israel quite soon
0: because he said that that the generation would not come to pass before the end times occurred, which is an indisputable fact. It says it in the Gospels. Now... scholars believe hey you know how judas betrayed jesus that part the reason that judas betrayed jesus or rather the mechanism by which he did was revealing to the authorities that hey this jesus guy he's saying that he's he's calling himself the king of the jews in private he's not running around in this public ministry doing that because that would be a really good way to get himself killed but judas says hey guess what behind closed doors When he's with us, he's calling himself the king of the Jews, which is the hypothesis that Bart Ehrman, the person who we're getting all of our sources from about apocalypticism, uh, because Bart Ehrman is a person who, or is a scholar who adheres to the apocalypticist view, would argue, Bart Ehrman would argue, hey, Judas probably revealed that secret information to the authorities.
1: Now, of course, I would like to remind uh, everyone that this does have, this is somewhat... uh commonplace um narrative there's a very commonplace narrative attached to this um in gnostic tradition which refers to judas not actually betraying jesus but rather following jesus's orders and quote-unquote betraying him as a part of the plan uh, a secret plan which goes along with gnosticism which is sort of uh Secret knowledge uh, being the main part of it. Well, the Gospel of Judas um, is, is is an
0: incredibly am- amazing text. I mean, I was listening to this narration of it, and I, I thought to myself, this narration, coupled with this text, coupled with the background music, that's cool stuff. I'd recommend uh, checking out checking that out. You can just you know type in like you can type in like uh, the the Gospel of Judas narrated or something to that effect, and you should find it. But the Gospel of Judas, the contents of the text, I mean, this is so esoteric. You get. The creation of the heavens, you get the aeons and the luminaries unfolding from from, from uh, either nothingness or from clouds. It is absolutely fascinating. It it has a mystical vibe to it. If you read it, it is um it is very ilu- illuminating. You might say it is very fascinating. But to to get down to the specifics, you have the disciples and uh, and Jesus are. About to, about to eat some food. They're about to uh, celebrate a supper. The, apostles, the disciples are depicted as not very intelligent. Um, they're essentially depicted as fools. Then Jesus comes in. I believe it's Jesus, if I remember correctly, and says, like, why are you doing this? You're not actually celebrating the... T- you're not actually celebrating the true God by doing this because in Gnosticism, you have the Demiurge who is uh, generally conflated with the God of the Old Testament. And then he, Jesus pulls Judas aside and, and he says, do you know who I am? And Judas says, heck, well, actually what happens is Jesus com- comes up to the apostles and says, uh, uh, whoever, like, tells him to look at him in the eye and judas is able to look at him in the eye but he kind of shies away while doing it and jesus says do you know who i am and then judas says i know who you are you are from the immortal realm of Barbalo, which is the name of the highest female aeon and um then judas tells jesus a story in which he is in which judas goes into a house It's a mansion, it's massive, and he sees um, himself getting stoned to death, he sees um, um, people doing human sacrifices, he sees people engaging in homosexuality, which at the time was viewed as a, and still is, unfortunately viewed as, you know, like taboo stuff, and then, like I said, Judas is supposed to be stoned to death by the apostles, and then Jesus says, um, hey man, I'm blessing you, you know, you're not, Jesus says, I'm, I'm blessing you, you know, people in this generation, well, all the generations will will dislike you, will hate you, will curse you, but the 13th generation, Jesus says, uh, will know you for who you truly are, and that is a common theme of Gnosticism, the seed of Seth, the quote-unquote immovable race, um, the 13th generation, that type of symbolism is incredibly common, although I do not know what, although I'm not as well versed in this as I should be, but episode three, Apocryphal Gospels, we'll try to dissect a little bit more in the Gnosticism and try to really um, pull out the contents of the Gospel of Judas.
1: Now, it should be remembered that in the apocalyptic uh, hypothesis, um, people believed that upon the time of the world ending, or the end times, then uh, everybody would be judged. Uh, no matter who you are, you will be judged if you are good or evil. Those who side with evil will be, you could say, damned for the rest of eternity, and those who side with good would forever live in, well, in this case, uh, heaven. Uh,
0: some scholars believe that the, that that the that heaven and earth or rather not heaven and earth, heaven and hell, those two extremes, were transplanted into Judaism through Zoroastrianism, and then into Christianity and Islam in later centuries. Now, if you go to the the sources, the textual sources, this is, again, text, this is actually textual justification for why people say, hey, Jesus was an apocalypticist, you have the Q source, the hypothetical textual source, from from which Matthew and Luke redacted. You have Mark, M, the hypothetical textual source, for Matthew and L, the hypothetical oral tradition, from which Luke redacted. These all portray Jesus as an apocalypticist, whereas John and Thomas, debatably a source, and to stay tuned for episode three, in which we are planning on discussing with you the gospel of Thomas, do not portray him as an apocalypticist. So John and Thomas, the later sources, although Thomas is debatably a source, say, no, he's not an apocalypticist. But interestingly in Thomas, and by the way, have scholars on both sides debating if it's actually authentic or not, in Thomas, um, there is mention that Jesus is that people were saying Jesus was an apocalypticist, and the person running Thomas was trying to refute that. So you have that as evidence, plus you have a bunch of apocalypticists running around, uh, around the same time as Jesus. John the Baptist, the Qumran sect, thought to be the Essenes, Thutis, and the Egyptian, two people mentioned by uh, Josephus, those were all apocalyptic religious figures around the time of Jesus.
1: Now, I'd like to start begin talking on the zealot Jesus argument, which is similar, but instead of interpreting Jesus King of the Jews statements as a religious proclamation, more as a political uh, proclamation, this of course was not um, very popular amongst the Romans, which actually in this case does help explain a lot. Uh, relative to why he hated his saying, uh, I am the king of the Jews so much. And there is a lot of evidence uh, showing this, uh, his very aggressive um, reaction to what was happening outside the temple. Uh, and he enters the city like a king from the Old Testament
0: yeah're talking about a warrior king entering the city in a royal fashion like how Jesus did on Palm Sunday. People are laying down palms, laying down their clothing on the pathway. Jesus marches in on a on a donkey. people are waving palm branches. people are shouting Hosanna. It's a massive crazy. King-like entrance mirroring the entrance of kings in Jewish scripture. Then you couple this with what happened next—the violent cleansing of the temple. So then, um, the violent cleansing of the temple. Add on to the fact that Jesus was criticizing the, um, the 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 authorities at the time, and then you have a picture that says, "Hey, maybe Jesus was arrested for being kind of a rabble rouser, a, a, a firebrand, a rebel, a rebel." Then you have the fact that outside of the temple, or in in the area in in the front of the temple, or not in the center of the temple, but the area that was auxiliary to that, you have Jesus cleansing out all of the uh, merchants who were selling their stuff. Jesus, you know, turning over tables and throwing things around. Kind of a famous scene from the Gospels. You have that. Depiction, however, it's not necessarily historically accurate because there's literally a sign that's set over the doors that says, Hey, anyone who does what Jesus is literally doing, so anyone who throws things around in this part of the temple, um, that's punishable by death. And there's like guards posted outside the door around the place. For that specific reason of if anyone does that, capture them, arrest them, and then they will probably be executed, which is debatable that Jesus got away with this, given that information, plus the fact that that, that part of the temple was acre upon acre upon acre. So you have this huge space that Jesus is clearing. You have guards posted either in the vicinity uh, by the door or both. And you have a sign that says, doing this is punishable by death. We're getting our information, by the way, for a zealot hypothesis from the book, Zealot, The Life and Times of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, Opponents of the view that Jesus was a zealot. uh, also view the inscription of the cross as evidence for the Romans killing him. And the fact that claiming to be the king was treason and punishable by death. But people are like, hey, he wasn't part of the Zealot Party because Jesus predates the Zealot Party's existence.
1: Now, I'd like to begin talking about the Essene hypothesis. Uh, this is, of course, being mentioned... These are not, of course, mentioned in the New Testament, despite the events taking place in close proximity to the Essenes that supposedly transpired in the Gospels. Some, some people, of course, have thought that Jesus was an Essene. And do believe that he may be the teacher of righteousness, uh, who is the founder of the Essenes, or the crucified Messiah mentioned in one one of the scrolls. Also, the source we are using from this hypothesis is from Dr. Robert S. Heiser, who explains the Essene hypothesis in a video named Was Jesus an Essene? So, yeah, you have the first
0: hypothesis we're looking at. Ravsar and Jesus being the teacher of righteousness and I'll let take away the second one. It's, it's The second one's mind-blowing. Uh, they're, they're both uh, far out there, um, considered by scholars to be far out there. Um, but keep in mind the Qumran sect, which is which gave us the Dead Sea Scrolls, gave humanity the Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, the people who were inhabiting the caves in the Qumran complex were thought to be the Essenes. That's what, that's what scholars argue taking on the writing taking on from the writings of Josephus so you have the 4q 285 scroll. right this guy his name was doctor or this man his name is Robert Eisenman says hey look this 4q 285 scroll tells the story of a crucified Messiah but there's an issue that scroll is totally that scroll was written far before you know Jesus existed so Eisenman does his own carbon-14 dating, which he basically um, manipulates to give the the results that he wants, which is this consensus. People basically say he rigged the data, and he gets the scroll at the time of Jesus. So, he says, hey, look, um, Jesus is the crucified Messiah. Um, Isn't that cool? And also, he is the teacher of righteousness as well. So, he gets the teacher of righteousness, which who existed about a 100 years before Jesus, and the crucified Messiah um, hypothesis, which is also, like, predating Jesus. But I'll let um, Balin cover the hypothesis, or propose my woman named Barbara Thiering, who claims that she has kind of done crazy stuff with the scrolls in the New Testament.
1: Well, yes, um, Barbara Deering uh, did claim that she had discovered a code that could be used to decrypt the scrolls and the New Testament, resulting in the New Testament stories having a different meaning than what one originally expects. That, of course, being that, well, she basically says that Jesus was the sort of greater evil, like the the teacher who opposes the teacher of righteousness, the wicked priest. And of course, specialists of the scrolls, James Vanderkin and Peter Flint, essentially said that this was eccentric or bizarre. This, of course, being due to the fact that in these decryptions, Jesus married Mary Magdalene twice and is crucified near the Qumran complex but does not die. And of course, his unconscious body is placed in Cave 8, and he later lives out his days in Rome as an old man.
0: Yeah, so you have the first hypothesis by Robert Eisenman to recap, which says this, you know, Jesus was the teacher of righteousness and the crucified Messiah. However, in order to get, in order to yield... These results, Robert Robert Eisenman had to do his own Carbon-14 dating, which the general scholarly consensus was that he, you know, rigged the dating to get the scroll at the time of Jesus. Then you have Barbara Thiering, who says, hey, Jesus married Mary Magdalene twice, crucified. He was crucified near the Qumran complex. He doesn't die. His unconscious body is placed in Cave cave 8, and he lives out his uh, days in Rome as an old man, which is uh, far from what uh, most... well, far from what any, which is far from what any New Testament scholar or um, Dead Sea Scrolls scholars have proposed, to my knowledge. So you have kind of a you have two essentially fringe theories. The second of which uh, perhaps is even farther than that, but still absolutely fascinating. I I, I like the um, I like I like how she's you know exploring. The possibilities, but I would not really buy up, buy into that unless sufficient evidence is presented. Uh, Dr. Robert S. Heiser says, "Quote: If Jesus was the teacher of righteousness, he would have to be 200 years old in the New Testament gospel accounts. The chronology just doesn't work out." Unquote. Uh, additionally, the teacher of righteousness was not crucified. He was not mentioned in the in the Um, He did not mention the kingdom of God in the preserved scrolls and the scroll fragments, and he was not mentioned in the Gospels. Furthermore, Dr. Robert S. Heiser says that what Jesus taught in the Gospels was, quote, diametrically opposed, unquote, by what the Essenes taught for the reasons given about not mentioning the kingdom of God.
1: I'd like to begin talking about the mythicist hypotheses with a quote from Dr. Robert Price. Quote, Although there may have been a historical Jesus, there isn't any more. This, of course, means that the sayings of Jesus and every story about him can either be attributed to the rabbis at the time or the philosophers, Stoics and Cynics, as well as whatever Jesus was doing in a story can be paralleled fairly smoothly, smoothly to what Old Testament figures did. Additionally, we are getting our source material from lectures and talks from Dr. Richard Carrier and Dr. Robert Price, both of whom hold multiple PhDs. So, uh, you have Dr. Richard Carrier on the seven Pauline epistles
0: saying that Paul is non-Trinitarian, Paul was also geocentric, so the Earth is in the center of everything, the center of the universe, and... Paul believes in a multi-level heaven, with the third heaven being the Garden of Eden, where he was called up to and heard secret teachings. Paul also jumps in for his epistles with some Jewish uh, apocryphal uh, literature, uh, such as the the, the life of Adam and Eve and... uh, And he also used lost scriptures, or scriptures not included in the Old Testament, and different versions of scriptures that are included in the Bible. Paul also believed that, Paul, according to Dr. Carey, believed that Jesus was basically the chief archangel of God, and he used Stoic, Platonic, and Aristotelian philosophy. Um, Paul did, not Jesus, although actually debated that Jesus did use uh, Stoic philosophy and Cynic philosophy. But um, Balin, take it away about
1: uh, the hypothesis
0: that Jesus was the angel placed in the Metatron rule.
1: Well, uh, the Metatron role in the angelology uh, generally is basically the role of this sort of, and I'm quoting here, Prince of Heaven, who is essentially the mouthpiece of God, usually either to other angels or, more, more commonly, humans, which is a very interesting role to place him in, considering that he is considered usually a teacher, making sense, but also Having some interesting contradictions found in other Christian uh, beliefs, you also have
0: um, the angelology and demonology of the early Christians, which Carrier, Dr. Richard Carrier, argues was a both well was a incredibly esoteric and b was lost because of tradition or persecution. So you have also, you know, the memorization of the names of angels to pass through the layers of heaven was also something that I believe Dr. Robert Robert Price brought up in the discussion between him and Dr. Richard Carrier. Additionally, Dr. Robert Price's view on the seven so-called Pauline epistles are very fascinating. He calls them so-called Pauline epistles because he thinks that, well, Paul was actually Simon Magus because of the the pseudo clementine homilies Uh, he also believes that there's a parallel between simon magus and paul uh, and the fact that simon magus is considered to be the fountainhead of gnosticism by the catholics the emerging catholics actually rather the proto-orthodoxy and paul is considered to be the fountainhead of gnosticism by the gnostics themselves according to dr robert price Christ believes that it is possible that some of the writings in Romans was written by Simon Magus himself. Also, he believes that these seven Pauline epistles were actually written by, well, written by the Marcionites and the Gnostics first. The Marcionites being dualists saying, hey, they're not Gnostics. They're not classical Gnostics. They're not Gnostics in general. But the Marcionites say this. We have the God of the Old Testament, the evil God, the God of the New Testament, the good God and the more powerful God who sends Jesus. Uh, the Gnostics, who have an incredibly complex, esoteric, and well, uh, very Hel- Hellenized,
1: as he said before, Hellenistic. But I would also possibly include somewhat, uh, definitely esoteric, as well as having a few similarities to uh, mystery, mystery religions or cults, uh, due to their secretive nature and Hellenistic uh, influences. You also have, um, you, you have additionally, the uh, argument from
0: Dr. Overprice Price that there were there were uh, secrets for, for the telioi, or the perfects, as you might want to call them, in the uh, for the telioi or the perfects, who were the highest up, uh, or rather, who were in the upper echelons, we'll say, who were in the upper echelon, we'll say, of of the Gnostic traditions, those who are initiated to high ranks, who would be able to see secret Gnostic doctrine embedded in the epistles. Uh, Additionally, uh, Price says, hey, the emerging Catholics came in there and messed with what the Marcionites and the Gnostics were writing. And you also had, you know, Simon Magus uh, showing up in there as well to write his commentary in Romans, is what Dr. Price argues. But Price says this, Hey, the people, the Marcionites, the Gnostics, and the Emerging Catholics did not cross out what, what other people wrote and then put their views in. No. What they would do is they would basically say, hey, the Marcionites wrote this. As an example, let's write the opposite thing but in a different chapter. The Emerging Catholics wrote this. Let's try, to write, let's try to write the opposite thing in a different chapter. So basically, you'd have women prophesying or eating animals sacrificed to a different deity as okay or not okay in one chapter and then say in the next chapter you'd have it be oh yeah you can um, go ahead and do that or no doing that is uh, something that should not be done so they basically quote unquote correct one another that's what the uh, Marcionites and the gnostics and the emerging catholics would do additionally you have uh, a press says uh you quote can find docetic and adoptionistic and arian christology hints here and there unquote uh, paul says it is obvious or price says it is obvious that paul is non-trinitarian because you you know basically begin the trinity with tertullian and the three cappadocians price points out the trinity is never taught in the new testament so fascinating
1: now we should begin talking about the mystery cult uh influence of early christianity or emerging christianity uh which had similarities to them due to the syncretism uh of christianity that being the combining a foreign divine figure with a hellenistic culture uh this in this case being hellenistic and jewish theology another being converting the polytheistic religion from which the cult came into a monolaterous religion in which there was only one sort of covenant With the divine figure, the people were worshipping individualism, which mystery cults started out for agricultural salvation, which seems quite obvious during this time period. And then this turned into a more personal salvation. And finally, it's cosmopolitanism, that of course being every race, culture, and class are admitted as equals into the cults or religions and are no longer born into the religion, but choose their religion. These of course being the four, um, points which Dr. Richard Carrier divides the model of a mystery cult into Uh, these, but the most important parts, which, uh, Christianity, um, are the mysteries and initiations, which early Christianity, when it was still Jewish Christian, uh, arguably had as a feature. Also, the character worshipped in the mystery religions was always a son or a daughter of the sort of king of the gods. Uh, baptism as. And baptism as initiation ritual in some mystery religions, which Christianity utilized uh, obviously quite frequently, um, showing yet another similarity. And mystery religions did indeed have a sort of religious meal or food like to the communion as a sort of, As another initiation ritual, uh, being almost the exact same events within multiple mystery religions, uh, the cult of Mithras being a very good example of this.
0: Also, quickly, about uh, Simon Magus and the Gnostics. Uh, Dr. Robert Price, going back to this really quickly. He believes that um, Simon Magus is the founder of Gnosticism. Some uh, scholars believe that Simon Magus is the fountainhead of Gnosticism. Others believe that he is a Gnostic, but not the fountainhead of Gnosticism. However, uh, Doctor John D. Turner, who is a leading scholar in Gnosticism, says that the Sethian tradition, the oldest Gnostic tradition, and Simon Magus cannot be dated in terms of each other. So it's it's, it's there's at least currently, no way to date if Simon Magus originated or predated Sethianism or if Sethianism predated Simon Magus. Going back to the mystery cults, let's talk about some examples. So we have the the Eleusinian Mysteries, which were Mycenaean plus Hellenistic. The Bach Mysteries, Phoenician plus Hellenistic. Addis and Cybele, I did not pronounce that correctly, mysteries, which were Phrygian plus Hellenistic, the Baal mysteries, Anatolian plus Hellenistic, Mithraism, Persian plus Hellenistic, the Isis and Osiris mysteries, Egyptian plus Hellenistic, and the Christian mysteries, Jewish plus Hellenistic. So you have baptism being very distinct uh, from Judaism, uh, Christian baptism, is because you were born again. You go into the water, you Die with Jesus, then you come back reborn with Jesus. You you do this with Osiris, which is very fascinating. And there's because you know, you when you are submerged with in the, in the Osiris in uh, Isis cult, you are going through Osiris's ordeal. And then when you're brought back out of the water, you are reborn again, you are renewed. The cleansing of sin was a new phenomenon. This was not part of a jewish baptism but it was part of the cults of bacchus osiris and mithras there's also baptism for the dead first corinthians chapter 15 verse 29 that uh, which the bucket cult had and the mormons now use because in first corinthians chapter 15 verse 29 it says hey baptisms for the dead uh, yay so that was actually used in the very early parts of christianity but then stopped um also Balin, would you like to talk about um the Lord's Supper, and the Passover
1: uh, in in a Christian context. Now, the term the Lord's Supper was seen in the cults of Bacchus, Cyrus, and Mithras. This term, of course, is mentioned in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 20, and the Passover keeps the connection to Judaism, but communion is a feature of mystery religions. The concept of of mysteries is seen in mystery cults and the following passages of 1st corinthians chapter 4 verse 1 romans chapter 11 verse 25 romans chapter 16 verse 25 first corinthians chapter 2 verses 6 and 7 first corinthians chapter 15 verse 51 first corinthians chapter 3 verses 1 and 2 hebrews chapter 5 verses 13 and 14 and this of course not being written by Paul and then Mark chapter 4 verses 11 and 12
0: additionally you know Dr Richard Carey expands on his view on his views in an interview describing how Paul you know a marketing genius jumped into the Jewish Christian mystery cult and got rid of the circumcision part and other rites of initiation used for Judaism that in the past, people thinking of converting to Judaism were put off by making it more popular. Initially, Christianity was Jewish Christian, but with the flooding in of Gentiles over time, the Gentile population became the vast majority. Jewish Christianity became Gentile Christianity over that time, and Gentile Christianity attacked and went out over remaining Jewish Christianity, which exists in the form of sects. The sects in which it existed Uh, were like the Alkacites, which Mani, who is the Manichaean prophet, was thought to have been a part of the Alkacite sect. Um, There's the Nazarenes, which were a sect of Jewish Christianity, and there's the Ebionites, which have their own gospel in which Jesus was a vegetarian. The Ebionites were also incredibly important to the archaeology of early Christianity. Currier points out additionally how the arguments between the arguments with Jesus with the Pharisees sound like internal arguments between the Two liberal and conservative groups of the Pharisees, leading some leading Jesus to sound like a person or character arguing for representing the arguments of the liberal Pharisee sect against the conservative
1: Pharisee sect. It should be remembered that Mark is the earliest known gospel, and the subsequent gospels are variations of Mark. The Pauline epistles appear not to mention anything about the uh, historical version of Jesus leading, which leads some scholars to believe that Paul had no access to Mark or any biography of Jesus. Mark's gospel is a extended parable hinted secretly in, which is hinted secretly in the text, but revealed only to initiates. This was part of the reason why the mystery cults were so popular. Uh, The sort of superiority that comes in finding the revealed, mess, the revealed hidden messages in stories, making them feel this uh, in contradiction to those who are not initiates and have an emotional reaction to the revealing of the secret meaning. Basically,
0: a person would say, "Hey, you want to see the secret? It's time to see the secret meaning of the gospels." The person would, you know, hear what the gospels or the section of the gospel meant and then they'd have this crazy like oh man wow that's mind-blowing but then they'd also feel you know kind of superior to those who didn't know message of the you know the gospel so that was like coupled with the crazy wow the epiphany plus the fact that they, you know feel uh, superior to those who didn't know the knowledge i mean that was that was a driving force in keeping the mystery cult alive um, also, Mark takes stories from Moses, Elijah, and Elisha and rewrites them for Jesus. So he has Jesus doing mo doing what Moses was doing, except it's you know secretly hidden. Jesus doing what Elijah was doing, except it's secretly hidden, and Jesus doing what Elisha is doing, except it's secretly hidden. So that way, you know, you have the stories of Moses, Elijah, and Elisha. You have them rewritten for jesus so jesus is the moses of that time the elijah of that time and the elisha of that time mark actually wanted to overtake uh, homer who had the who you know homer was like the pagan bible which is how um carrier puts it and mark was a greek by the way but mark wanted to replace homer and wanted to replace the jewish stories with the christian stories and also debatably according to carrier mark is borrowing from josephus by taking 20 points from the story of a man named Joseph Ben Ananias.
1: The Book of John went through multiple redactions, having Jesus suddenly in different places, miracles in different orders, two separate endings, and Lazarus being replaced for John, Mary Magdalene being changed, and the authors saying, we are relying on a source that they claim existed. Instead of the Gospels being written by multiple people, at the same time, they were redacted by authors over time who changed things to fit their liking. Essentially, like uh, editing, editing out parts of history so that you can, you can have your own preferred narrative.
0: Well, that's what Luke did. Luke said, hey, remember that part in Mark where Jesus died and the curtain of the temple was torn in two? Uh, let's actually make try to make a different theological point and have the curtain torn before Jesus died in two. So then there's gospel contradictions. There's a great video by Bart Ehrman in which he explains the contradictions such as the genealogy of Joseph. Do the apostles stay in Jerusalem or go around outside of Jerusalem until long after the ascension? What's the deal with that part? And like... Does Mary, Joseph, and Jesus, do they go back to Nazareth directly after the birth, or do they go to Egypt after the birth? Things like that. So careful analysis of Paul also shows that stuff was interpolated a ton. You could argue that Paul references the Last Supper, but he actually says that this was revealed to him by revelation from Jesus instead of from an eyewitness source or any biography and does not mention anyone being there at the Last Supper. Instead, he says that the revelation contains Jesus speaking to all Christians who will ever live, instead of to his disciples. There are no analogies to Jesus' life in Paul's letters, um, which may, which might, you know, come in handy, given that Paul is writing to the Christian communities when they were in conflict with them, when when there was conflict within those communities. Um, yeah. So,
1: now we've been mentioning the Q source for quite some time now. Um, being some form of hypothetically lost gospel, a material used by all the other gospels verbatim, redacted in some way shape or form, and some scholars argue but some scholars argue that Matthew is the Q source and Luke redacted Mark and Matthew and Matthew added things to Mark and Luke redacted that material scholars argue that luke redacting mark and matthew explains a lot more data than the q hypothesis does this is a minority belief um in the in this scholarly community in which about a third of the people believe that q did not exist basically the simpler answer is the that q never existed there since there would be have to be hypothesis on top of hypothesis, having ideas about hypothetical redactions. Scholars in the field have privately told Carrier that they are not really convinced of the historical Jesus, but do not want to come out about it publicly. This is due to the fact that they do not want to jeopardize their career as a scholar as scholars an example of a scholar being ridiculed over their uh controversial ideas was an old testament scholar named thomas thompson in the 1970s uh who was the first person to come out with a peer-reviewed study that claimed that moses and the patriarchs actually did not exist which got people trying to take down his entire career and leading him to go through a lot to survive Uh, scholars are often funded of course in these cases by christians regardless of if the scholars are christian or not and saying that jesus did not exist would probably not make the people funding the scholars too excited if they were christian
0: so that is the mythicist hypothesis, and that is all four of the did-Jesus-exist hypotheses. So thank you so much for listening, and stay tuned for episode two, Mystery Cults, in which we are planning on exploring the cults of Mithras, the Isis and Osiris mysteries, the Ball mysteries, and numerous other mystery cults, as well as episode three, the Apocryphal Gospels, episode four, eschatology in episode 5, a debate between atheism and theism. So until next time, see ya.